If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine and BBC History Revealed. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. As the war in Ukraine continues, so do debates about the historical parallels that can help us to make sense of the situation and the ways in which history is being used as a weapon in the conflict. Matt Elton caught up with Christina Spohr, professor in the Department of International History at LSE, to get her take on events and whether we should see the conflict as a new Cold War. So... As we're talking, um, the fighting is still happening in Ukraine. Um, I wondered uh, what you thought were the key historical factors shaping the conflict. How how far back do you think we can trace its roots? I think there's two ways to look at it. On the one hand, how Putin himself has presented why he's justifying to go to war now. Um, Namely that on the one hand, um, you know, he says that Lenin made a mistake by granting the peoples of Russia and the Tsarist empire, you know, self-determination and that therefore we got these independent countries, some of whom ended up in the Soviet Union, some not, or some later through the Hitler-Stalin pact. So 1917 is one key moment. The second key moment is that he considers the collapse of the Soviet Union, the greatest geopolitical catastrophe uh, of the 20th century, which is, you know, a really striking statement from 2005, uh, considering that, you know, most of us uh, would think of the greatest catastrophes, World War I or World War II. So that that is very important um, for his narrative. And then, of course, uh, he has also later um, developed that argument further and said that it's also humanitarian catastrophe because the Russian minorities that are outside Russia are therefore being uh, left outside the state boundaries. And that's why the near abroad, uh, the former ex, uh, former Soviet republics, uh, need to be somehow tied closer to Russia, uh, if not like we see now with the war in Ukraine absorbed. Because actually, and here we come to a much uh, longer distance argument, uh, he considers these two fraternal nations uh, one, uh, he, he considers actually Ukraine not a nation, not a state, and he believes that that's why they should be in Russia. In fact, he thought that the Ukrainians would be welcoming uh, Russia uh, were they to liberate, you know, what he pro- proclaimed was some kind of Western puppet regime or um, or marionette government uh, or what he also has declared as Nazis. Um, but I think there's another thing that he tried to use uh, to great effect and also got many Western um, observers and and, um, people uh, confused, populations confused under the sort of hybrid warfare and the war of narratives, uh, namely this claim that, of course, the West after 1991 has been turned into this empire of lies, as he calls it, and this empire of lies um, has betrayed Russia and that this betrayal started actually during German unification when the Soviet Union got promised that NATO would never enlarge to the East. And that is something that has been peddled uh, ever since uh, the 1990s, already under Yeltsin, 
and then all the more so uh, under Putin, although there's actually no historical evidence whatsoever uh, to this claim because everything that was agreed is actually in the German Unification Treaty, the treaty settling the German question. And as part of that, it was agreed that Germany could choose freely its alliance and that since Germany, a united Germany, chose uh, to be in NATO, um, nevertheless, under the two plus four uh, treaty, uh, the former East German terrain until the Red Army's troop withdrawal in 1994 and in perpetuity since then uh, would have special limitations, including no um, Western uh, nuclear weaponry, because Germany itself hasn't got any anyway, uh, and also no foreign troops stationed uh, in that terrain. So these are very, very significant uh, limitations inside the treaty. But then, of course, what happened uh, to that narrative uh, is tied actually to what he considers the greatest geopolitical catastrophe, namely the collapse of the Soviet Union, which even shocked, remember, Western leaders as well. Western leaders held on to Gorbachev until the very end. But it was Russia that opted out of the Soviet Union. The Baltics had already re-established independence um, after the coup. And furthermore, uh, the other republics had um, referenda, and including the Ukraine, uh, where more than 80%, including also in the regions Crimea uh, and Donbass, um, you know, each voted for independence from Russia. Nobody wanted to go into a Russia-dominated club, not even Belarus, Ukraine uh, and Kazakhstan. And that particular moment is completely forgotten uh, in that narrative. So then we have to also consider that, you know, Russia, despite Yeltsin's, Yeltsin's own promises uh, to become a democracy, to install law and order, uh, as well as um, in, going from the plan to the market. Uh, and Russia entered, of course, even the G7, uh, even if it's not one of the most advanced industrial states in the West. Um, but, you know, that was part of an integrative effort uh, by the West. And there's also a NATO-Russia founding act, which was signed before NATO even uh, proclaimed uh, enlargement. Uh, we have to remember that, you know, already in 1993, Russia was in great political chaos. Uh, we saw the rise of the ultranationalists and the talk of the near abroad. Uh, and that must not be forgotten as a reason why the Eastern Europeans and the Balts pressed for joining NATO. And actually, NATO was very much reactive because America wanted the peace dividend after the Cold War. America had no interest really uh, to remain in that sense, a European power beyond what was agreed over Germany. And we mustn't forget, the Soviet Union feared a neutral Germany floating between Russia and America much more than a unified Germany anchored uh, in the Atlantic Alliance precisely because of the experience of World War II. So there's a, there's a lot to put back there. What you're saying is the events of the early 90s, so the attempted coup uh, in, the SS, in the USSR, the fact that some of the nations had already started fragmenting away from the USSR, we, it's, it's, it's ahistorical to try and pin that blame on the West, in inverted commas, or on NATO. That was happening as a result of events happening in the USSR by itself. Absolutely. And of course, in we must not forget how important the agency is of both the newly independent states, but also of the 
states, the ex-satellite states, once the Warsaw Pact collapsed and they had transformed from uh, one-party regimes, one-party communist uh, countries into um, multi-party democracies, they chose for their security to look west, to the institutional west. And by that, I really mean, you know, EU, um, the EC was moving towards becoming the EU. They meant EU and, and NATO. And because it is actually quite difficult to join the EU, given the communautaire, you know, that hurdle of the criteria you need to fulfill uh, is quite high, especially as the European community becomes deepened and becomes the European Union. Uh, it was obvious that actually first in line in terms of political alignment with the West were the former neutral countries that moved out of Russia's shadow, Austria, Sweden and Finland. And so the Eastern Europeans would take much longer to get in, not least because it took them longer to reach the level that you would have to have in order to become an EU member. And because Russia was so unstable, because Yugoslavia imploded, because we saw the Chechen wars, because we saw, you know, Azerbaijan um, and Armenia fighting, we saw problems in Georgia. Um, because of all this instability, which was, you know, potentially uh, also moving westwards, many countries in that Europe in between, in between Russia and NATO Germany, uh, looked for a security umbrella in the West. I mean, that's very important, that agency. They didn't look to Russia to get security. They had just actually escaped in some ways that Russian shadow. And so actually they looked West and that agency, uh, Putin is denying them. And that's, of course, what we see also uh, with the um, the occurrences of warfare uh, in Ukraine. And, you know, this complaining about that, you know, they were becoming too Western. But if we think of the Helsinki final act of the Conference for Security and Cooperation of 1975, it's then turned into the organization in the 1990s. And where Russia is a signatory, the Soviet Union actually was the one that drove it most. It wanted inviolability of borders recognized. It conceded that, of course, there should be self-determination, the right to sovereignty, the right to choose your alliance. But, you know, in the aftermath of Soviet collapse, it meant that others would choose something that Russia did not consider ac acceptable to itself once almost that post-imperial trauma returned to the forefront in this context of what many in Russia experienced as a humiliation of the Red Army withdrawal from Eastern Europe by 1994. It's obviously quite hard, if not impossible, to tell how the current conflict is being received in Russia today. But do you think that Putin's grievances are based on any uh, valid historical events or movements? Or do you think they are completely divorced from the reality of what happened? You know, from our perspective, of course, it's still a Eurasian empire. It reaches still in its smaller form, uh, you know, from the Baltic Sea to the Bering Strait to the Pacific. It's still the biggest country in the world. It has the biggest nuclear arsenal. And yet... Uh, a man like Putin from the um, security services experienced himself by being in East Germany a sense of uh, humiliation, a sense of, you know, uh, trauma that this empire fell apart, that it was allowed from his perspective that Gorbachev allowed this to happen. He has no um, sentiment for the fact that, you know, Western leaders also feared the collapse of the Soviet Union. They feared anarchy, that in fact they actually clung onto Gorbachev. Uh, he has no feeling for, you know, in the way Yeltsin emerged that Yeltsin was a parade of sovereignty and was declaring Russia sovereign in some ways opted out of the union and destroyed the union uh, for its own power hunger. Uh, that is completely left um, outside um, the story. Um, I think what's, what is really important to, to also 
see historically that Russia has always grappled also with this identity. What is it to be Russian, to be Russian Orthodox, to hark back to the Kievan Rus, to, uh, to think about, you know, these Russian values that he declared in his Millennium Manifesto that were so important with a strong state and a leader that serves that strong state uh, and that Russianness and that Russia deserves to be, you know, a great power, perhaps even a world power, and that doesn't want to have anybody above it. It has to be recognized as equal. And he really uh, sensed that, you know, what happened um, through the collapse of the Soviet Union was in that sense a humiliation for Russia, and he needed to revise it. So what we see is, first he dealt in his first eight years with the consolidation of his own authority of creating a stability under authoritarian auspices in Russia politically. He stabilized the economy because that had been in a complete free fall. But of course, after that little changing of chairs with Medvedev, when he came back the second time, it was about the foreign policy agenda. And that was about putting Russia back at the top table uh, in international diplomacy. And that's why he took so much offense, uh, you know, when Obama said that Russia was a regional power, not a world leading power. And of course, equally, we see why is there this sort of awkward, unholy alliance emerging between uh, China and Russia. Uh, Lavrov has declared, you know, that Russia wants the post-West world order. Putin speaks about the liberal order being obsolete. He hates any references to unipolarity. He said so already in 2007. He said so again in 2019 in this famous Financial Times interview. And the Chinese want to be a world ordering power by 2050. So they both come together by saying, we want recognition of multipolarity. And we want, you know, to undo that normative structure that has been binding us since 1945. And certainly since 1991, we perceive that as a Western dominated world order, and we don't want this anymore. So that needs to be challenged and changed. And here we see, you know, the reversion to, you know, old power political tools where if you don't get by diplomacy what you want, you apply force. Do you think there are any historical moments that help us understand the Ukrainian response? Yes, I think the Ukrainian response you can look at, for example, in relation to Finland's experience uh, with the Winter War in 1939. Here you have a country where there was an independence referendum in, in December 1991, where even in Crimea, more than 50%, more than 80% in the Donbass, more than 80% in general in Ukraine, um, voted for independence from the Soviet Union, and by default also had made clear they didn't want to go into a Russian-dominated union with Belarus. Belarus and Kazakhstan. Uh, that country went with the independence. It had, of course, problems to resolve, especially with its big neighbor and, of course, a fraternal state. And most Ukrainians and most Russians have some kind of family ties with each other. Uh, that, of course, Ukraine as a country is also, in that sense, a multinational state. Uh, you know, it's, of course, also the old bloodlands of, of World War II. Um, but we have to consider that, you know, Ukraine as a state got recognized by Russia, by the international community as an independent state. Uh, it had to sign up to start so that we dealt with the strategic um, arms reductions adequately after the Soviet Union collapsed. And Ukraine also joined the non-proliferation treaty under the Budapest Memorandum by getting security guarantees from Britain, America and Russia for its territorial integrity and security uh, by giving up its nuclear weapons arsenal, which was the former one third of the Soviet arsenal. So that is, you know, uh, the sense of how Ukraine formed that nation state, uh, but the people started to um, 
you know, associate with. Yes, that state has had corruption. Yes, that state has always hovered between, you know, looking more West, looking more to Russia. We have seen this across the decades. It has been moving increasingly uh, to the West uh, more recently. Um, but, you know, what, what I'm trying to say is what you see also with this warfare, you see this great morale to defend your soil against the external aggressor. And that is, of course, what we also had with the independent Finland since 1917, that when the Soviet Union launched an attack on Finland, uh, which became the Winter War in 1939, uh, Finland fought back uh, and resisted very, very strongly. Uh, the Soviet Union. So here you see a very similar reaction. And of course, also in the Ukrainian case, on the basis that it defends the inviolability of its borders, its territorial so uh, integrity, its sovereignty, its right to be, you know, a free um, uh, state that can make its own choices, also when it comes to joining institutions. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. I think this is forming to be an, an end point of an era that was constructed out of the rubble of the ending of the Cold War. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match. With Indeed, use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra. Do you think that there's been talk about some of the miscalculations or apparent miscalculations that Putin has made? Do you think because he is so fixated on the past, part of those might be due to the fact that he hasn't caught up with the reality of what life is like or what identity is like in places such as Ukraine? Yeah, I think there's several um, things. First of all, of course, he has his own historical obsessions and his own personal experiences. We all carry a particular hinterland with us. But of course, he has over several decades now cultivated a particular view and he has almost obsessively uh, come to think about the Ukraine and the European and the world order in very particular ways. From his perspective, he has created a narrative um, that he has perpetuated 
in that sense, he has conducted that hybrid warfare also against the West already for several years, but now put COVID on top. Uh, we all had more or less experiences of being in particular bubbles of, you know, not being as interactive with each other as usual. Uh, he was particularly uh, in his own bubble with only a, a small a group uh, of advisors around him. He wasn't seen much publicly. Surely that enhanced, that isolation enhanced certain thoughts and a certain sense of frustration and powerlessness even more. And when you consider that vexing sense that, you know, when you think about gathering the Russian historical lands, which is one of his missions, when he thinks about, you know, that great Soviet Union and the collapse thereof and what a humiliation, and he thinks of these anniversaries, you think of the military parades, you think of the anniversary of Soviet collapse, all these sort of things come together in his mind. And at some point clearly was a tipping point where he decided that the only way to vent this frustration uh, and to take what he thinks belongs to him and Russia uh, would have to be enforced because um, simply harassing and amounting, you know, uh, a big military buildup to bully another country, to make these maximal claims uh, on security guarantees, uh, which, by the way, also goes over the heads of all the Europeans by just demanding security guarantees from America. That's also a very early 20th century thing. You see how this frustration built up. And then actually, at some point, he decided, you know, this is not going anywhere. I'm going to go for the absolute maximum. And he went for war. And the miscalculation was really both in how the Ukraine uh, would react that they would defend uh, tooth and nail uh, to their death, effectively, uh, that um, they weren't welcoming the Russians as some kinds of liberators, that it wasn't really about the Nazis. And furthermore, when you go to war, you make, of course, a step and you actually really know it, um, where you cannot control everything. And we are seeing that his idea of doing a quick special operation um, over you know, 48 hours, 72 hours, that didn't work out at all. Uh, he has ended up now being drawn into a war and we are now into the fourth week. And normally after four weeks, you need to consider, you know, uh, logistics of replenishment, of reinforcing your arms, uh, your troops. Uh, you have to get fuel to the front. Uh, you have to get food to the front and you have to get ammunition to the front. And all these things are not working very well. And for all these things, you also need a slight lull uh, in, in the fighting so that you can actually get to the front lines. And, and that's where people thought, well, maybe this is the moment when some talks can bring some resolution. But again, you know, this is not really what we're seeing right now. We're actually still in the middle of the warfare. We are seeing, you know, Mario Paul completely uh, beleaguered, uh, humanit complete humanitarian crisis, war crimes. And now we see today just uh, the latest attacks on Odessa. I wanted to also get your thoughts on the response of the West and of Europe, uh, particularly. Are you surprised by any of it? I mean, there's been some talk about how it's brought the sort of ideals of NATO and uh, more to the foreground. Are you surprised, for instance, by the German decision to rearm to such an extent? I think it's very interesting that, you know, uh, the German government, which was new, which is in a three-party coalition, which is led by a social democrat who at home also has to straddle the old pacifist Ostpolitik wing, which is more for dialogue than for deterrence, and the more Helmut Schmidian wing, um, which is more for deterrence and loyalty with the NATO. Uh, for a long time, Germany just looked on. And of course, you might argue that one of Putin's calculations was um, you know, you ramp up the pressure when you have a new government in Germany, 
um, one that is perhaps more uh, Russia friendly, while you have a French president who has to gear up for elections, uh, while Biden is the old guy who Putin dislikes anyway. So this is an opportune moment if you just think about, you know, what kind of leaders uh, you're looking at. And I think here's another miscalculation, that actually the reaction was that the EU and NATO both completely stood together. And even more shockingly for him, that actually Schultz comes out much more in the Helmut Schmidt tradition, at least uh, what we know in terms of words so far. I mean, <laughs> deeds have to follow words. But that speech he gave on the fourth day of the war, that it was, you know, really a Zeitenwende, uh, you know, a, a new era was beginning for Germany, that, you know, in the EU and together with its allies in NATO, Germany would also have to carry the responsibility, which it had often been criticized um, already, you know, since ever since Germany unified. Uh, and that would entail, you know, a rebuilding properly of the Bundeswehr, which had been completely reduced after the end of the Cold War, and also uh, contribute these 2% to the uh, to the NATO defense spending, the 2% of the GDP. Um, and uh, also, you know, go with the full sanctions package, including, um, you know, cancelling Nord Stream 2. And that really came as a surprise to many. But here you also sort of see uh, uh, Germany re-emerging, perhaps with France as a tandem that, you know, drives more European integration forwards also into the future, if indeed deeds follow words. But I think we see an, a new emancipation fully anchored uh, in the in a sense of history, because Schultz also said, even if we are loggerheads with uh, Russia that has proven to be an aggressor on this occasion, he does not want that, you know, reconciliation between the German and Russian peoples ever since World War II uh, is completely um, in the bin. But of course, you know, we know that this is a very uh, uh, sore situation um, and it will be very difficult also for ordinary peoples to function with trust the longer this war gets drawn out and the more it's affecting, of course, how Europe's order will look like once we get out of this war. Are there any other historical um, parallels or insights that you think we should bear in mind when thinking about current events? I think what's really striking is now, looking back, how when the Cold War came to an end, how when we moved into this exit from the Cold War, how all these different national interests, because people wanted to resolve things non-conflictually, how significant it was to peacefully create different sorts of win-win situations, to find common language, even if one had different national interests, to be able to conduct dialogue and to move forward to build something better. I think what we are really seeing here now uh, in, the, in the most uh, shocking new way is that Russia has effectively by its actions, or let's say Putin, it's Putin's war, turned its back on the West. And the fact that it's turned to China uh, to look, um, you know, for military material, for financial aid, um, and done so openly uh, in defiance uh, of that the Americans, of course, have told the Chinese that they shouldn't do this. Uh, by that, of course, um, Russia is looking east not West, and it's the first time in a long time in history since Peter the Great that the Russians are really doing this. Um, and that is a completely new situation. You sort of wonder, with such two different narratives, two realities, the, the Russians are fed a completely different reality and history by Putin, especially now also with all the censorship. Um, and, and, you know, we have to not forget the Gallups show that more than 60% of Russians say that they support this. In fact, Putin's popularity has gone up 
since the warfare in Russia. And that's, from our perspective, uh, truly shocking. But you see a sort of real inward looking towards this Russianness that is definitely not looking for dialogue with the West. And of course, Russia has been turned now into this pariah state. And that's why I'm saying it will be very difficult uh, in a larger plane, not just in terms of Russian-Ukrainian relations and the war, to see how we exit that war and what it means for the European post-war order uh, and the world order at large. Is this a new Cold War? Is it the old Cold War? Is this something entirely new? This is definitely not the Cold War. The Cold War was, you know, a bipolarity which was sort of frozen. There, of course, you know, in the third world, all sorts of little proxy hot wars. But the, the point was that in terms of the system, it was stable because of mutual assured destruction. And it was ultimately also an ideological competition between two different modernization models, one of which was a planned economy and Soviet communism uh, simply failed. Uh, not, not necessarily because the West beat it, but because it failed from within for structural reasons. And what we are seeing now is much more, you know, back to the old power politics of the 19th century. But in the Western world, and by Western, I mean, you know, countries, including Japan, countries that sign up to law and order, to, uh, to Western forms of governance, to democracy, to a particular set of values, to the open market, um, you know, to all that whole combination of things, um, that runs with a particular uh, normative regime enshrined in the UN Charter, uh, in the European case, in the Helsinki Final Act. It runs with particular uh, institutional forms. Uh, and of course, that is different. In that sense, that order is different. And what is being defended is different than what existed in the 19th century. So the question is, can that be defended up to a point? Um, or are we really going back to warfare along, you know, the, the survival of the strongest. And then I think we are into a very long period of different kinds of wars, whether it's cyber war or whether it's assertion of China vis-a-vis -vis Taiwan and all sorts of conflicts that involve these big powers. And that is very, very dangerous because the danger of escalation, uh, you know, and, and weaponry uh, that can be highly destructive, ABC weapons, uh, is, is really too awful to contemplate. How finally, as a historian, would you like people to see the events of the past month? I think this is forming to be an, an end point of an era that was con constructed out of the rubble of the ending of the Cold War. So if after uh, 1989, we moved into this world, certainly in Europe, into this post-war world, China went its own way. It had its own exit from the Cold War. But if in general we moved into a world where we hoped to build better relations, where there was a sense that somehow economic liberalization that took place everywhere, including in China, but there was a belief that that would go hand in hand with political liberalization, that thinking has now clearly uh, come to an end because we see economic liberalization was not for all followed by political liberalization. There wasn't that so-called end of history, this universalization of democracy. Uh, we can see that, uh, you know, capitalism can very, very well go hand in hand with authoritarianism and the application of force. And that era has not been ended by the COVID. That era has been ended because uh, Russia, as a revisionist power, seeking to reestablish itself as a world power 
uh, in global politics has now started a war of aggression. And we really have to ask ourselves what that, in what kind of era we move now, what it means for our international law, um, you know, all these things that were important at the end of the Cold War, a rules-based order, uh, trying to use the UN uh, for various uh, crises, civil wars, and so forth. That's, that is not functioning now because one of the countries that is a permanent member of the United Nations Security Council is now the aggressor and is thereby blocking for the world community to come together, uh, you know, to deal uh, with uh, an aggressive power. And so we are now moving into a new terrain uh, where China, Russia, the United States, Europe and the Euro-Atlantic Alliance, uh, we will have to see how that plays out and also what is going to happen longer term also in the Pacific uh, as we consider how Russia, China, Japan uh, deal with some of the problems that are occurring there. So we, I think we are moving to very unstable, uncertain times. And that's always what makes people anxious, what makes politicians anxious, because even if we have different national interests, we can use in our diplomatic toolbox and try and work on war avoidance strategies through communication, uh, through trying to create calculations ability beyond our differences. But at the, at the moment, we cannot do that. We have actually nothing to talk to each other about because all those tools have been thrown out of the box and they just have this, the, the, the law of the strongest being played out uh, on the ground in Ukraine right now. That was Christina Spohr. You can read more expert analysis about the roots of the war in Ukraine in the May issue of BBC History magazine, which is on sale from the 14th of April. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.